All right. Good morning. Our letter for today is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. We find it in Revelation chapter 3. Now, throughout this series, we've held that these letters are written to actual historical churches, but they are also given for us today um, that we might learn from them. Jesus ends each letter in the same way by saying, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So from this command, we know that we are right to consider these words for us also, that we might learn what Jesus expects from his churches. I'd remind us that even when these were sent out, right, they were bundled together and sent out to all seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, Some churches probably would have been more proud than others to receive their letter. Some churches needed more correction than other churches. You know, we know what it's like to receive a report card, right? Maybe it wouldn't be so bad if we were the only ones who ever saw our grades. I said it was like someone always got bad grades, but I got okay grades. Good enough. But if we were the only ones to ever see them, right, there wouldn't be any fear or anxiety in that. Um, but imagine, you know, teachers bundling up everyone's grades and just sending them home uh, with you so everybody can, can read everybody's report. That's kind of what these letters were like, right? Now, Philadelphia maybe wouldn't have, you know, maybe they would have been happy about it, right? They receive an A-plus from their Lord, right? Laodicea, Sardis, Thyatira, maybe not as proud of their letters, um, and as I think about that, like we did a table talk um, for our YouTube. How do I explain table talk for people who haven't seen it? I don't know. Table talk, YouTube kind of uh, video thing we do. We did an introductory video, and I remember Brent kind of making a joke about Philadelphia receiving their A plus like report card and just looking at it and being like, oh man, yeah, really good, like the A plus student, and kind of looking around at the other churches and just being like, oh, what'd you guys get? Like, you know. Laodicea, how'd you do? Like, they, they probably would have been kind of proud um, of this letter. Now, one of the things that makes this an interesting letter and an interesting study for me um, in preparing this is that this church received a glowing report. And not only that, but every detail of what Jesus says in these letters just has a lot behind it. Like, there's a lot of information, a lot of interesting historical things going on, um, a lot of Uh, just significance behind the words of Jesus, even in these short letters. And I pray that in our time today, even though we have a limited amount of time to kind of look through it and mine it, I pray that this would stir up a love of God's word in you, that that you would return to these letters um, and look into them more for yourself. So today we're going to be met with a church that kept Christ's word and would not deny his name, even though they were of little strength. And I pray that their steadfastness encourages the door as a church, right, to keep Christ's word and to not deny his name. So let's, let's read through this letter, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 14, 13, to 13. Uh, I'm coming out of the NIV today because it's the nicest Bible I have, so I had to go with the NIV. <laughs> it's that genuine leather. All right. Uh, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so this letter includes the same three sections that we find in all Jesus' letters in Revelation, right? We open with the greeting slash qualifications of the sender, Jesus, right? Then we move on to the body, which is kind of the report card section, what Jesus thinks of their works. And lastly, the promises to the one who is victorious or the one who overcomes. So the letter begins with this inscription to the, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? Now, historically, there's been some discussion about these angels and whether they were angelic beings or human messengers. I think this is actually one of those times where our first impression just reading through Scripture may not be the best, uh, may not be the best one. Now, we know the Greek word for angel literally means messenger, right? Often messenger of God often translates as angel, but not always, right? And this is kind of an an interesting rabbit hole to go down. It's something interesting to study um, this week if you get a chance. But I, I'd say that I lean towards um, these angels being human messengers. And one of the reasons for that, one of the big reasons for me, is that we know how these letters were distributed, right? They would have been sent physically to the churches. It would have been written down and sent physically to them. Um, and eventually, you know, now we hold it. So I'm going I'm to go with humans on that one. Jesus continues his introduction to the church by saying, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So Jesus identifies them as the one, identifies himself to them as the one who is holy and true. And I want you to kind of remember that holy and true. We're going to come back to that a little bit later uh, in our time together. But he also is identified as the one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, what is a key? Maybe that's a simple question. Let's just think about that for a second. Simply put, a key gives the holder, right, the ability to lock or unlock something, often a door. It also, though, represents authority and responsibility, right? I mean, you wouldn't just give your house key to someone you didn't trust, right? I can remember as a child, right, my parents sometimes would leave us with a babysitter and they wouldn't give me the key, they would give it to the babysitter. And I would kind of like follow the babysitter around, I'd be like, can I just hold the key, like can I touch the key, can I, I wanted to take it and just like, you know, show it to my brother and sister, not punch them in the face, but just like show them like, hey, I'm in charge now, I have the key, I'll lock you in, I'll lock you out, I'll do what I want settle down everybody. Like I wanted to do that, right? And I would, I would fall around the babysitter, kind of like Smeagol with the one ring, right? I'm always like kind of, <laughs> that's a bad picture, but 
<laughs> There's a reason you didn't give the ring to Gollum, right? If you know your Lord of the Rings. There's a reason why I wasn't given the key, right? Pretty obvious. I couldn't be trusted. Now, let me just say real quick, like, things have changed, okay? I can be trusted now. I have the church key. Brent's, like, sweating. I did lose it for a while, but I found it. You know? And the real reason for me to say that things have changed is just, like, we're house-sitting right now for the Camels. They're in Arizona. Like, everything's good, just in case you're tuning in. Like, I can be trusted, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jesus can be trusted with the key. Okay, he's, he's in fact, he's the only one who's up to the task. So he's given by the Father, he's given the key of David. But what is this key of David, right? It's kind of an interesting phrase. There's actually one other place in Scripture where this phrase is used. Um, and it's in Isaiah 22. And you, you can write that down, but you don't have to turn there. I'm going to kind of summarize it for us real quick. In Isaiah 22, we see the story of Eliakim, right, who was to be the palace administrator. He was going to replace uh, a wicked servant that God was going to judge, and he was going to be, God was going to replace that servant with Eliakim. And with this position as a palace administrator, right, he, was, he would be given the key to the house of David, Right? And he'd be given authority and responsibility to decide how the resources of the kingdom were dispersed on behalf of the king. And he would also be able to decide who gets in, who gets to see the king, and who doesn't. Right? So God is speaking judgment to the man who has this uh, job before Eliakim. And he says this in Isaiah 22. He says, In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now in Revelation, right, we find Jesus describing himself as the one who holds the key of David. God has entrusted Jesus with this key, this key to the kingdom. This means that Jesus has ultimate authority over who's getting into the kingdom and who isn't. Who gets to see the king and who doesn't. Now, this truth about their Lord is going to have special meaning to this church in Philadelphia as we continue on in our letter. So let's do that. This next section is what we call the report card section. So how are they doing? Like, what does Jesus think of the work of his church? Let's read it. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, to fully appreciate Jesus' word to this church, we need some historical understanding, right? We need to understand the relationship between the earliest Christians and the Jewish synagogues. Right? What is a synagogue? In Greek, a synagogue just means a gathering place. Right? It was a place where the Jews would come together. It was a community center where they would study the Torah and they would worship God. And they would also have social celebrations and events and things like that. For many Jews in the first century AD, this was a, a major part of their life. Right? They were in Roman, a Roman-occupied empire. This was a, a safe space, for lack of a better term, for them to come together and, and worship and, and do their thing. 
To be Jewish during this time was to be part of a local synagogue. It was the center of their community. And so when Jesus came, who did he come to? He came to the the lost sheep of Israel, right? He came as a Jew to the Jews. In fact, each of the four Gospels tells us he spent a lot of time in these synagogues teaching with people and, and walking with them. As he would travel around Galilee and Capernaum, and Capernaum, he would frequent these gathering places, right? It was a good place to find people. And in John 18, when Jesus is being questioned by the high priest, right? It's after he's arrested and he's being questioned by the, the Jewish authorities. They're asking him about his teaching. And how does he respond? He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret, so why question me? Ask those who have heard me, surely they know what I have said. So even after Jesus ascends into, his, into heaven, right, his disciples continue to testify in the synagogues about everything Jesus said and did during his earthly ministry, right? And even how he died for their sins and arose again, right? It was, a, it was a continued pattern after that. And even as we look into the book of Acts, right? We went through that as a church. Remember that Paul would often go first to the synagogues, right? And then to the marketplace uh, or the, the public square, right? First he would go to the Jews and then he would go to the Greeks, right? And why, why do you think he first went to the synagogues? I think part of it is that the Jewish people were ripe for the gospel, right? They were expecting a Messiah, right? So they could, they could go to them and, it, you know, they, they would tell them that the Messiah had come, right? Jesus has come and he is the Messiah from God. So Christ came first to them and his disciples did also. In fact, most of the early Christians came out of these synagogues. Right, we know that came out of Judaism. Both people who are ethnically Jewish um, and also God-fearing Greeks, they're called. People who had converted to Judaism. All right, and over time, however, as you read through the New Testament, you begin to see this inevitable split between the earliest Christians and the Jewish synagogues. And I said it's inevitable, like, why? Right, why do we see this, this inevitable split? Well, it's because of what Christ commends them for in this letter today, right? See, though they had little strength, and I would compare you know, their, their reputation for little strength with, with a church like Sardis, right, who has a reputation of being alive even though they're actually dead, right? We learned about that last week. Philadelphia has a reputation, if you can even call it a reputation, for little strength. And yet, Christ is happy with their work, right? Because... These earliest Christians had kept the word of God and not denied Jesus' name. Even with the tremendous pressure on them to deny Christ and return to Judaism, they wouldn't. They held on to the one thing that made them distinct, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ. They knew that their greatest treasure was worth losing everything else so that they could hold on to that. The truth of a God who loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for our sins so that we could have new life in him. 
I mean, that's worth, that's worth everything, right? That's worth holding on to. Where many churches in the cities around them had compromised, right, as we read through the seven letters, many of them had compromised. They had not. Many of the letters, many of the churches who received these letters required correction, but Philadelphia did not. They had kept the word of Christ and had not denied his name. Now this church was meant, like I've said, with, with intense opposition by those who claim to be Jews, though they are not, or Jesus' words. So these Jews, right, were imposters pretending to be something they were not. And I remember as a, as a young teenager growing up in Southern California, we had to deal with imposters too. We called them posers. We, we were skaters, or you could say skateboarders if you're like a nerd or whatever. But <laughs> as skate culture continued to grow, right, it expanded, especially in the 90s, but it expanded beyond just skate culture and began to expand into mainstream culture. And we, you began to see people who weren't skaters at all wearing the clothes, right, wearing the shoes, maybe even carrying a board around, which is always funny. It's like, you can ride that thing. It has wheels, like... We called them posers. The only thing worse than being a rollerblader was being a poser. <laughs> Which, like, it was a rivalry when we were young. And, like, to this day, like, it hasn't left me. We'll be at a garage sale, my wife and I, and she'll be like, oh, I want a rollerblade. Look at these cheap rollerblades. I'll be like, no, not my wife. <laughs> I wish that wasn't true, but it's true. Like, anyway. <laughs> I would love you less. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Hopefully she's not tuning in. Okay. All right. We'd call people out as posers, though. We'd be at the mall, and we'd see someone be like, poser! Like, they could have been, like, a way better skater than me, but we were always trying to call people out uh, as posers, and they would have to, like, drop their board and do a trick, right? So I, like, made sure, like, I could do a few tricks, right? Just in case someone called me a poser. I did a kickflip once and then just, like, retired right after. I was like, I, I peaked. I'm done. <laughs> Anyway, no one wants to be called a poser, right? So Jesus is calling these, these unbelieving Jews out as posers. They pretend to be the children of God, yet refuse God's own son. Now they're taking it a step further, and they're persecuting God's true children. But Jesus had warned his followers about this, right? In John 16... Before he goes to the cross, Jesus warns them specifically about a coming friction uh, with the Jews. He says this, he says, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Now, in our text today, these warnings are, are no longer future, right, but present. Jesus goes so far as to call them a synagogue of Satan, which, like, makes me feel dirty to even, like, repeat. Like, that's a hard judgment. They're persecuting Christ's church just like they persecuted Christ. Now, we talked about the deep cultural importance of the synagogue for first century Jews, but just imagine how painful it would be to be cast out from that group and even met with violence. Not only are you losing a large part of your community, but you'd, you'd be told that you're losing your place in the people of God. 
the nation of Israel. Like, just think how devastating that would be. It would have been like losing your, your social, your cultural, and even your spiritual identity all in one. Early Christians lost their place and in, in their welcome in the synagogues as it became clear that they weren't going to stop talking about Jesus, right? They weren't going to deny Christ. They weren't going to leave the gospel behind. And yet the Jews weren't going to accept Christ as God's chosen Messiah. So Christians were cast out the door and it was shut behind them. What would it have been like to be shut out of your community or your family because you follow Christ? How many of you guys have heard of the organization, The Voice of the Martyrs? Kind of a cool organization. They put out, they put out a, uh, a magazine. I think we put it out here somewhere in the church sometimes. Anyway, you could sign up for it. Not a commercial. Anyway, Voice of the Martyrs, they put out a monthly magazine uh, that shares stories from the church across the globe, right? And a lot of them, sometimes they're hard to read. Just the, the suffering and persecution of Christians um, is both hard to read but also inspiring, Right? So it's kind of one of these things I, I try to force myself every month when it comes out to, to read it, and it's, it's always a blessing to me. And I was reading it a few weeks ago, and it included a story about a man named Bassam who lives in the Arabian Peninsula. Right? They don't even really say exactly where he lives for his own safety, um, but it tells the story of Bassam who had come to Christ, um, was given faith by God in Christ years before, and um, did what a lot of Christians do in that area where they kind of kept it to themselves, right? He kept it to himself. He met, met with his mentor who was dis- discipling of the faith and would have like small gatherings of Christians, but because it was so dangerous, um, he kind of kept his head down. And as he grew in his faith and matured um, in, in reading his Bible, he became convicted and, and went to his mentor and just said, you know what, like I, I've been sleeping. It's time for me to wake up and share my faith. And so Bassam started first with his family, right? And he, was, he told his wife and his daughters, and he was, he was met with rejection because in that culture, um, Islam is, is it, right? And it's not, it's not even that everyone is devout. It's just to be Arab means to be a Muslim, right? And so he's met with rejection um, and even violence from, from family members of his, of his wives. And, and she begins to reject him and and stop him from seeing his daughters, um, and he begins to experience persecution for his faith. And the, you can read the article, but it kind of goes into regular beatings from his brothers-in-law, um, one time even putting him in the hospital, and, and, and they got caught for doing it, and they, they, the police came to him and said, we want to press charges against your brothers, brothers-in-law like we know what they're doing, and he said no. Like Christ has forgiven me much. So I'm going to forgive them. And people began to take notice, right? His wife even, it says, ends up stirring up so much trouble with him that he gets dragged before the courts as an apostate, right? As someone who's left Islam for another faith. And the judges are trying to, like, make it easy on him. And they say, no, you can believe in Jesus. Like, you know, in Islam, we believe in Jesus, that he was a prophet. And, and Bassam had the courage and the strength to say no, like, you're talking about a different Jesus. I believe in the Jesus who is God who became human. 
And over time, like his family begins to notice um, his devotion, you know, that this is a man transformed, right? And they can't, they can't explain it as he's crazy or whatever, but they, they see a difference in him in the way he forgives others and the way he wouldn't deny Christ's name. And they begin to ask questions and uh, he, they ask him for Bibles. And eventually a few of them even come to faith. You know, not that his life is, is much easier now, but God works through that, right? Even though he had little strength, right? He kept Christ's word and wouldn't deny his name and God worked through that, just like in our church that we're reading today in Philadelphia. Now, the truth is we don't have to look throughout history or even across the globe to find Christians who suffer for the name of Christ, right? There are people in this congregation, I know some of your stories, who have suffered because of your faith in Christ, right? It's cost you in your family relationships or at your job. What does Christ have to say to those who have a door shut in their face? Let's read it. He says, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Wow. An open door that no one could shut. What an encouragement this would have been to this church in Philadelphia. What an encouragement this is to Basam or to us as we follow Christ. In Christ, we find an open door, right? And what is this door? Where does it lead? This door leads into the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God that Jesus spoke about in the Gospels. This door leads to salvation. This door leads us to our Father in heaven. What a promise for this church in Philadelphia of an open door. And yet, Jesus is just getting started here in this letter um, with promises and gifts to church. Jesus continues in verse 10. He says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour. I'm not so sure. I, I think it's difficult to build a doctrine like that here. Uh, here are some things we do know, right? This letter, as we've said, was written and addressed to an actual congregation, right, that existed. We know this promise would have had direct meaning for them. Like when Jesus said it, they would have understood it as something significant. It is difficult to draw a larger meaning from this verse for us. Part of the reason is this isn't address, this isn't a promise to the one who is victorious, right, which we take as, as, uh, as gifts to Christ's church kind of at large. It's not part of that coming section, but rather appears to be a specific promise made to a specific church because of enduring patiently. Not every church who received a letter was commended for enduring patiently. Not every church who received a letter was promised this this reward. Perhaps this is a reference uh, to the persecution brought on by Domitian. We've been kind of talking about that as we've studied these letters. Um, it's difficult to know. So I'm going to kind of take the safe route uh, and leave it at that rather than speculating for us like a broader meaning. If you're interested, like come talk to me or ask Brent. He's like the expert. <laughs> Just kidding. Come talk to me after if you're more interested in that because I read a lot about it, but all right. Because, yeah, I'll just say this. Because our job up here when we're preaching isn't 
just to preach the things we think or, or we want, but to preach the things we know from God's word. All right. Jesus continues in verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So when Jesus' mission on earth is done, God will send him to gather his church together. Though they appear to be losing in this world, and in some ways they are, Jesus writes to them to hold on to what is theirs, a crown, right? Who gets a crown? Like the victorious, right? What a striking contrast. This means that in Christ, they are victorious already. Like, that's awesome. So they are encouraged to endure now and hold on to their reward. But what does it mean to hold on to what we have? Like, what does it look like to endure? Now, the truth of this is that you and I live in an abnormal time and even place for Christians. We have lived in days where following Christ has cost many of us little. Speaking for myself, it's been easy to be counted with Christ, even at times a benefit. I honestly find it difficult to relate to what these early Christians went through. I just haven't really experienced things like that. Maybe that's why, you know, I find their faith so inspiring, and I hope that you do as well, right? I feel kind of untested sometimes, right? We talk a lot about coming persecution we talk a lot about standing up for Christ, but it hasn't cost most of us a lot. But what if that changed for us tomorrow? What if following Christ meant that you lost your job? What if keeping Christ's word meant the loss of a relationship with your family? What if not denying the name of Christ cost you even your life? How would you respond? I invite you to consider today, what does it look like for me to keep Christ's word? What does it look like for me to confess Christ's name and not deny it? Now, if this scares you or makes you feel weak, you're not alone. I kind of feel that way myself. But remember that Christ is with you, right? It's not by your own power that you will stand, but by the power of Christ. In the beginning of this letter, Jesus identified himself as the one who is holy and true. Now, what's kind of amazing about that is not only is Jesus holy and true, but for those who have placed their hope and trust in Christ, he has become for us holiness and truth, right? It says in scripture, it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is righteousness, holiness, and redemption, the power we need to confess Christ before the world and to keep his word is given to us by Christ, by what he accomplished for us on the cross. In Christ, we are redeemed 
and made able to stand for his name. All this so that one day we might walk through that door. A door that, that no one can shut into his kingdom without end. Next, we read the last section of this letter. This is the promises to the victorious. Or some translations say the one who overcomes. In verse 12, it says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Now, one of the things we know about the city of Philadelphia is that they were famous for earthquakes, right? In AD 17, there was a, a massive earthquake that destroyed the town, but like a few things were left standing, and those were the pillars of the buildings, right? And so after this earthquake, those who were able to get out lived outside the city in camps for years and years while the city was being rebuilt. And history tells us that many of those people never even moved back in. The ones who remembered what that earthquake was like the terror and the danger, just never wanted to live in the city again. Think about what a promise this would have meant to them. Those of little strength are now told that they will be made pillars in the temple of God and that they will never leave it. Like, that's pretty cool. No one will ever shut them out, right? They're... Our creator welcomes us into his kingdom and loves us because we are his. There was also a practice of inscribing the names of faithful public servants onto these pillars. This is likely the sense of Jesus' next promise to them. Uh, kind of in the middle of verse 12, it says, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now in this closing section, Jesus promises that the, the victorious in him, the one who overcomes in him will be marked by him. He will write the name of God, the name of the new Jerusalem, and even his own name on them. Have you ever written your name on something? I'm sure you have. We all have. Maybe a toy when you were a child. Maybe a tool like a hammer. Everybody's trying to inscribe their name on tools all the time. Well, I collect old records, right? I've been collecting them since I was 12. And one of the things when I was young that would confuse me when I'd go to a record store was all these records had like people's names written on them. People would take like a big Sharpie or whatever and just draw their signature like over the face of John Lennon or whatever record I was looking at, you know. And it would confuse me. Like not only often was it just written on there once, but like two or even three times. You'd open up, pull the record out, the center label We'll just have like someone's signature on again. It's like, oh man, this is going to be all day. I'm going to have to clean this up. And I never understood like why people really did that. I was like, wait, isn't it in your home? Like, what do you, this is weird. Well, I was talking to an older guy one time in a record store, and this is not going to be news to most of you who live through records, but <laughs> it, is, it was to me. So I, I was talking to this older guy, and he was like, yeah, we used to like take records to someone's house for like a get-together, 
And then at the end of the night, like, where are all my records? Like, they're, half of them are gone, you know? Like, <laughs> at the end of the night, they want to be able to sort out whose records belong to whom. So we write, on, write our names on things that are valuable, right? We write our names on things that belong to us, ideally. What Jesus is telling this church and all believers is that you matter to me, right? Not only that, but you, you belong to me, and everyone will know that. When all things are sorted out at the end, like we're... Jesus has taken us with him into his kingdom. He is assuring a group of Christians who had lost much, right? They had lost even their identity. He's assuring them that an eternal identity is waiting for them in him. This reminds us of Jesus' words to his disciples where he said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those who believe in Jesus, who keep his word and confess him, will one day walk through that door into heaven. And when we do, he will write on us the name of God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. He will also write on us his new name. The King of kings and the Lord of lords will claim us as his own for all eternity. We, whose home is not in this world, will get to go home with our Lord. Amen? All right. Those who have ears today, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the ability we have to gather in a safe location as your church, Lord. I pray that you would be with your people and that anyone on this earth that ever has a door shut in their face for their faith in you, Lord, I pray that you would be with them and that they would be reminded of the open door that we have in you. We thank you for, for dying to open a door for us into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.